And please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, we're looking at verses 11 through 18. We come now to one of the most widely discussed passages of Revelation. One that maybe many of you were curious about when we would get here and what would be said about the mark of the beast. Uh, predicting the identity of the beast, whose mark is 666, has become almost uh, like a game. So I thought this morning we'd play pin the tail on the Antichrist for a minute. Uh, some of the obvious candidates, Cellini, have been world leaders such as Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, been the uh, Egyptian president Anwar Sadat. Uh, but Americans have been proposed too. Right in his book 666, The Final Warning, Gary Blevins argues that the Antichrist is none other than our beloved 40th president, Ronald Wilson Reagan. One of the reasons being that each of his uh, first, middle, and last name has six letters in it. So Ronald, six, Wilson, six, Reagan, six. Could it be any more clear? Then, you also may not be aware, but after he left the White House, he moved into an address that was 666 St. Cloud Road. So don't be fooled by the saint in the language of the road name, but it was uh, 666, and, and the Reagans actually had it officially changed to 668 because of the associations. Well, each of these candidates are dead, and Christ has not returned, and so it seems pretty clear that none of them could be the Antichrist. So thankfully, the game goes on with candidates who are still alive, one being Henry Kissinger. His pursuit of world peace made him a prime candidate for the tale. Now he's at the age of 96. He may be running out of time and energy to fill the role. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev remains a strong candidate at the age of 88. Even Bill Clinton, who was Time's Man of the Year. He was, in fact, the 66th Man of the Year. Just add another six there. Maybe it was in the shadow of the 66th, but Man of the Year. Now, his position on the cover of Time magazine, his face was right in front of the M, and it was positioned in such a way that the tops of the M, the capital M in Time, could look like horns. So it's possible Clinton himself fills this role. Well, one tongue-in-cheek commenter proved that Barney, now the purple dinosaur Barney, was the Antichrist. She stated the phrase cute purple dinosaur, uh, you begin with that, and then you change all the U's to V's so that it's proper Latin, and then she extracted all the Roman numerals from that phrase, which left her with C V V L D I V. You take them and add up the values, and of course you get 666. But Barney went off the air in 2009. However, we have plenty of reruns, so who knows? Maybe he's alive and well. Unfortunately, right, these, that one was an obvious, uh, humorous, poking fun at this idea that just about anyone could become uh, uh, someone who represents the 666 or the mark of the beast. And un 
not a, most of them are not so humorous. Most of them are serious. Countless hours have been wasted scouring backstories and news articles to find any piece of obscure evidence that might support a blindfolded shot in the dark. And so the solution to interpreting this passage is much more broad and straightforward, in my opinion. You don't need to learn Hebrew or Greek or Latin to figure it out. I believe, as we've seen multiple times in the book of Revelation, and as we'll continue to see, that this passage portrays persecution or systemic oppression of believers from, Roman, from the Romans to the present, from the time of the Roman persecution to present persecution upon the church. The church has faced and will continue to face political, religious, and economic challenges. Uh, of course, that did occur under Rome in very plain ways, and it has continued in various places and various times since Christ's ascension. Okay, so we should expect persecution, I believe, to even increase and culminate just before Christ returns uh, to finally put an end to it. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, even as you've given us this worship service as a means of grace, the central component of that is the preaching of your word. Lord, your word is, is supporting and guiding every aspect of this worship, worship service. And so as we sit under the preaching of your word, we want to hear you speaking. We want to be fed by you. Lord, we know that we depend upon your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth, to soften our hearts that we would obey what we hear. And so, Lord, do a work through your word, a work that only you can do, and equip us for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that, is, uh, that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in the outline, you can uh, look at this first section, verses 11 through 12, and fill in the blank, the promotion of the beast. The first thing we'll see here is the promotion of the beast. 
So another beast we open up here, rising out of the earth with horns that imitate the lamb. We saw that with the first beast as well, this imitation of Jesus, imitating the lamb who was slain, who also had horns. But this second beast speaks like a dragon. And so William Hendrickson says, although this beast outwardly resembles the lamb, inwardly it conceals the dragon. He's given permission to exercise the authority of the first beast. There in verse 12, he uses deceptive persuasion to enforce idolatry. And so the second beast is called the false prophet later on in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 13, and chapter 19, verse 20. We'll see the, this second beast referred to as the false prophet. So I'll use that language interchangeably. But he fills the role of the Holy Spirit within this unholy trinity. I remember we talked about the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet representing this unholy trinity as a counterfeit worship. It's counterfeit worship um, that, that God calls believers to. And so this second beast, this false prophet, promotes the worship of the first beast. His signs, which we'll look at in a moment, his signs mimic the signs of the apostles who were uniquely filled by the Holy Spirit in order to do many signs and wonders, which confirmed uh, the, the, the work that they were doing, the proclamation of the gospel that spread forth uh, through the apostolic ministry. And so if the first beast represents evil state authorities, then this second beast stands for anything that, that is allied to the state to promote that counterfeit worship. Okay, the first is the state. Well, then the second would be the state church. Uh, The first is political, the second is religious. Uh, The first represents Rome, the second would represent the imperial cult, which promoted the authority and power of Rome. And so the application to Revelation, I think, goes well beyond the first century. It wasn't just referring to Rome and the imperial cult, um, but that is where it was first applied. So the first beast rises out of the sea, And it's promoted by the second beast, which rises from the earth. Together, they're claiming authority over the entire world. And it's much further than Rome ever achieved. So they stand opposed to the mighty angel that we saw back in chapter 10, verse 2, who had one foot planted in the sea and one foot on the land. And we said that that is most likely a reference to Jesus Christ, who is standing in, in authoritative, sovereign authority over all the earth, right? He's, he's a towering figure so that if these were in the same scene, you would have these beasts being towered over by the true sovereign Lord. The, the mighty angel who is Christ towers over both of the beasts with sovereign authority. And the lamb has already defeated the dragon and he's received all authority in heaven and earth as Jesus himself says after his resurrection in Matthew 8, uh, 28 verse 18. So these beasts are fighting a losing battle. They're fighting for a dragon who has already been defeated. They're promoting the worship, uh, this counterfeit worship, simply to draw people away from true worship. And false teachers, we know from Revelation chapter 2, had already infiltrated many of the churches in Asia Minor. And they were bringing in cultural compromise to those first century churches. And we know that they continue to do so today. 
right? Cultural compromise is rampant, not just in America, but across the world in, in the evangelical church. We need wisdom to remain true to the scriptures when the culture, having been deceived by Satan and empowered by him, wages war against the church. Right? And we should prepare for that. It is coming. We shouldn't be surprised or shocked by that persecution when it arrives. We need spiritual discernment, therefore, to know the difference between worship and idolatry. Because it is going to be a counterfeit idolatry that in many ways mimics true worship. And so wisdom and discernment are required. Look at verses 13 through 15 of this section. We see the image of the beast is referenced. You have the image of the beast. The best way to promote authority is to claim divinity, right? And to require participation in idolatry upon the threat of death. And that's exactly what they did. That's what the imperial cult did for Rome. The beast has the power to perform miracles, we read. Making fire come down from heaven. And since his primary trait is deception, uh, we can assume that these are counterfeit miracles, the second beast promotes counterfeit worship and performs counterfeit miracles in order to promote that worship. They're deceptive miracles that mimic divine power. And we've seen that many times, right? That fire is associated with the presence of God all throughout the Old Testament. You have the idea of fire ascending or descending from heaven in the ministry of Elijah, and so this dragon or this beast is, is mim- mimicking God's power displayed through the prophet Elijah. And these, this false prophet presents himself as a lamb, right, as a sheep, but he deceives like a wolf. And Jesus warned of this in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus spoke of false Christs and false prophets who will perform great signs, Talks about that in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 14. Paul also, when he's talking about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, mentions the satanic signs and wonders that would accompany the man of lawlessness. So again, this is all consistent with the theology of the New Testament. Deception is the goal of this false prophet. He enlists human means to convince the world to make an image of the first beast. That's described in verse 14. And uh, one commentary, Price, he makes a, a strong case that the imperial cult, as it was operating in Ephesus at the end of the first century, um, which I believe is the time when John is writing, around 95 A.D., uh, that the imperial cult there is primarily what John has in background because uh, a statue, a, a giant statue was set up there in Ephesus for Domitian, for the emperor Domitian. And everyone in the province, everyone in the region gathered together at Ephesus at the temple there to worship this statue. And so that's, that would be consistent with this idea of an image being set up and being worshipped. Well, um... The Romans were fond of, of not just establishing these, this imperial cult in various regions, and we know that most of this, uh, the cities that received a letter in Revelations 2 and 3 already had some form of imperial cult taking place. It was still in, in some beginning stages at this time, but it was happening. And as we see in Ephesus, it was, 
it was it was full fledged, right? They were they were they were already competing with one another for the for the uh, the honor of representing Rome, sort of as this premier region for the imperial cult. Um, well, in addition to promoting that imperial cult, they would use magic to do it, right? They, even there's evidence of ventriloquism being used to to give this idea of an inanimate object speaking so that it, they could draw people in to the temple in order to worship. But of course, that kind of deception goes well beyond the first century. So this second beast, literally it says, gives breath to this image and the ability to speak, which then leads to the death of anyone who refuses to worship that image. And that should draw your attention or draw your mind back to a similar thing, right? Where Nebuchadnezzar, as, as he uh, requires people to worship this image that he sets up. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, he sets up an image and demanded people to worship it. And its measurements are given as 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. So John might have had that tr- the, the traditional Jewish interpretation of that passage in mind because according to them, they take the measurements of the image, which were multiples of six, as symbolic of evil state power. Not only that, they even go so far as to say that the image that he set up was a dragon who could speak. I mean, that, that very well could be in John's mind as he is now describing this vision Again, later on in Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, uh, there's mention of the abomination of desolation. Right? And Antiochus, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV had offered um, a pig on the altar in the temple, uh, which, was a ceremonial, uh, which would have been ceremonially unclean to the Jews, so it was an abomination to do this. Right? And he offers that pig on the altar in the 2nd century B.C., so most people say that's, that is the initial fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 of the abomination of desolation. I, um, very clearly, something is happening in the temple there that is, that, is, that is an abomination. Well, Jesus refers to Daniel's abomination of desolation as a precursor to his return in Matthew 24. So if it's already been fulfilled, if Daniel's Abomination of desolation has already been fulfilled in the second century B.C. How is it going to be fulfilled again? Well, Jesus is talking about it and its association with his return. Um, And shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, you have the emperor Caligula who who attempted to bring an image of himself into the temple. Um, And there's other examples of this, but the implication is that prophecy oftentimes has multiple episodes of fulfillment. It'll have an initial fulfillment there in Rome at the time of the writing for the original audience to understand, but it'll have multiple episodes of fulfillment throughout history. And that is how I've been reading and understanding Revelation as I'm teaching it to you. The idea is that all of these things relate to every age of the church as it faces persecution. Right? It's fulfilled in the past, present, and future. We cannot keep the original audience, or we, we should keep the original audience in mind um, because they oftentimes experience that initial fulfillment of a passage. 
But at the same time, we cannot assume that the first century exhausts the prophecy, that there's no more relevance of this prophecy to us today. Again, it's fulfilled in past, present, and future episodes. So I believe this passage is warning us of the plethora of alternative images that are able to distract us from true worship. And then we don't need, even really need to go into detail about what that would look like. People watch and read fake news. And students are required to read revisionist textbooks. The opinions of celebrities and athletes are valued above God's word. The modern materialistic worldview has effectively replaced God in, uh, with every kind of idol imaginable. Science and reason have been used to eliminate the need for God rather than to heighten our appreciation of his glory as it was intended to do. And so we might even see technology as the miracle worker who promotes every false alternative. So we're overwhelmed by choices to prioritize everything else above the glory of God. And the world promises what it can never deliver. And yet many settle for these counterfeit alternatives. And they, they settle for those alternatives rather than commune with God through Christ. And so I'd summarize this whole passage as this, many worship inferior displays of authority and power when Christ alone is sovereign. Right? He alone is worthy to receive our praise. And so when they submit themselves to inferior displays of authority and power, that in itself is taking upon them the identity of the beast. They're taking upon them the mark of the beast. Right? The second beast requires everyone to identify or to be identified with that first beast by receiving a mark either on the forehead or the right hand. One is, symbol, is symbolic of the ideology or the thinking, right? Your mind is committed to him, but also your actions, what you do with your hands, your right hand is, is committed to him, right? Christians were already considered impoverished because they did not participate in the trade guilds that dominated the economy. We talked about that when we were looking at um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. Right, the, the trade guilds that would set up these idols, these various gods that in order to participate in the economy, you had to worship false gods. So Christians were already persecuted in that way because of their unwillingness to attend these trade guild ceremonies and, and, and feasts uh, that were filled with idolatry. Well, this goes so far as to say the mark would be required in order to buy and sell. So participation in society without compromise would become increasingly challenging. And we've seen even that throughout history. And we've seen that here in America at various, sta uh, various levels. Certainly lighter degrees than in other nations and countries and, and not to the, to the level that Rome experienced. But we've seen this repeatedly throughout history. So the, the wise, it says, will be able to calculate the number of the beasts. Let the one who has understanding, in verse 18, un let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Uh, many have, have assumed that this means, or it's a reference to the practice, the ancient practice of gematria. Um, it's the practice of assigning a numerical value 
to the letters of the alphabet. And so it can be used to calculate the value of a name or a word or a phrase. And it was a practice that some Jews did adopt from the Babylonians. And so preterists who depend upon an early date's revelation have used Gematria to argue that 666 is a reference to Nero. I don't think that all preterists, that, that you have to do this in order to believe that, uh, that 666 is a reference to Nero, but some have used Gematria to make their argument, to make their case. And they, the way they do this is they, they say the name Caesar Nero, transliterated into Hebrew with a slight tweak to the spelling, produces 666. Well, the problem with that is that the original audience was made up of Gentile converts to Christianity, living in Asia Minor. That's the original audience. The likelihood of them knowing Hebrew is very small of anyone in their audience, or, or very few in their audience would have known Hebrew. Um, in addition to that, none of the early church fathers associate 666 with Nero. None of them reference Nero in, this, in their commentary on this passage. In fact... This may, may shock you because so many people reference Nero as the sign of, or as the symbol of 666 or the, the representative that's being pointed to. But the association between Nero and 666 was not discovered until 1831. I find that shocking and troubling. Um, there are far too many names and spellings that can be used to come up with 666 for this to be helpful. Uh, certain versions of the names of nearly every Roman emperor, including Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, can all be valued at 666 by changing their title or changing whether you're using Greek or Hebrew or Latin. And these are the kinds of tricks that are used. In fact, Salmon presents three rules to come up with pretty much any name you want using Gematria. He says, start with the proper name. Just start with that. That's the most obvious. If that doesn't work, add a title to the name. Right? Nero itself doesn't work, so we'll add Caesar. Um, then you can take that phrase and try it in Greek. If that doesn't work, transliterate it into Hebrew. If that doesn't work, transliterate that into Latin. Um, again, even the problem with that is Revelation, John doesn't have a problem referring to uh, letting you know that he's speaking about a term that should be translated in, in Hebrew or that makes sense in Hebrew. Like in um, chapter 9, verse 11, he says, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. So he's, he's notifying his readers, I'm going to reference something here that you'll need to know some Hebrew for. And I'm referencing something that if you ask someone who knows Greek, they'll actually be able to help you out here too. Right? And he does that again later on in chapter 16, uh, verse 16. So the idea that you would have to know Greek or Hebrew or Latin in order to do this, you can come up with a name. And then the third way is to begin to mess around with the different spellings. And when you're transliterating any kind of name from one language, its original language, into another language, you can do that. There's freedom with the, the number of vowels or even the kind of vowels you use as you, as you transliterate. Um, there's, no, there's no set rule for that. And so if that's the case, uh, then Salman concludes, we cannot infer much from the fact that a key fits the lock if it is a lock in which almost any key will turn. It's just not a useful tool. 
Gematria makes for a terrible code if the rules are so undefined. And so the mark of the beast, just like the seal of the Lord, is not physical but spiritual. It is about identifying with a false religion or a secular worldview. John notes the symbolic nature of the number several times. In fact, he, he doesn't even pin it down. He says it's the reference to the beast. He says it's the name. He says it's also the number of the beast and even the number of man. He's using it symbolically, very clearly here. The beast is the personification of imperfection. It's just to identify with the beast is to adopt his character. And so 666 is the number of man. Always striving, but always failing to reach that divine perfection of seven, right? Seven, seven, seven would be complete perfection. So six, six, six is complete imperfection. Constantly striving, never achieving. And so the point of verse 18, I believe, and really the point of this whole passage is to encourage wisdom and discernment among Christians to avoid being deceived. You see in verse 9, which we looked at last week, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. He's saying, hear this, obey this, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm sharing with you. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. This is not a call for saints to be clever, but to be discerning. And the former may sell books, but it's the latter that will fight the deceptive tactics of the enemy. And so if this exhortation were simply to be utilizing clever arithmetic or clever uses of gematria, then you wouldn't even need to be a Christian right, to discover the code or to cipher, right, to understand what the cipher would be. So 666 is not a reference to a single individual. It's a number of evil state authorities or it's the number of evil state authorities and institutions who enlist the help of deceptive teachers to persecute the church and to blaspheme God throughout this present age. They utilize every economic, educational, political, social, and religious resource at their disposal. And this interpretation dates all the way back to the second century Irenaeus. Compromise is an ever-present threat. And so what will you do when there's a substantial cost to your faithfulness? How will you respond? Believers must be grounded in Scripture. We must be surrounded by a community that supports us to remain steadfast under trial because they trust in the protection of the Lamb who was slain. Right, the one who shields us. And so the only way to avoid the mark of the beast is to receive the seal of God that was purchased by the blood of the Lamb. It's not about reading the latest technological um, thing or the, the latest news article on the end times. It's about trusting and the one whose blood was shed for us. And if you've received the seal of God, then he will protect you, and you'll never receive the mark of the beast. Supreme authority will have the final victory. And so believers, yes, they'll be persecuted. 
They'll be threatened. They'll be imprisoned. They'll be silenced. They'll even be killed. But we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and who gives us strength. All right, we have overcome evil by the blood of the Lamb. As we read in chapter 12, verse 11, they have conquered. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Reflect upon the, the martyrs of the church this week. Take some time to pull out Fox's Book of Martyrs. Think about these saints who have given their lives, who, who have endured the harshest levels of persecution, and be inspired and encouraged to face your own persecution when it comes. Our believers are never content with the imperfection of humanity. And we strive for the completeness that can only be found in Christ. And so let us continue to do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that is, is challenging, that is, is hard to understand on, on some levels, and yet consistent with the rest of this book. It's a, a, a passage that encourages us and prepares us for a day of persecution that is coming, for a, for a persecution that has fallen upon the church in every age of its existence. So, Lord, we, we expect that to happen. And, Lord, we expect also to be protected by the, the one whose blood was shed on our behalf, the lamb who was slain. Lord, it's him that we honor. It's, it's he who becomes not only our lamb, our perfect sacrifice, but also our shepherd who leads us, who prepares us and provides for us and equips us to face the onslaught of the enemy. And so, Lord, as we respond in this song, I, I pray that you would help us, stir us up, the joy of our salvation, remind us of these things and help us throughout the week to reflect upon those saints who have, have been faithful even unto death. Right, as we gather in our home fellowship groups, may that time be sweet and encouraging as we remind one another of the calling that you've given us, as we encourage one another, as we exhort and rebuke one another in love, or as, as we stir one another up to love and good deeds. Lord, may all of it redound to your glory. May everything we do, whether we eat or drink, may it all be for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.